0: series that we're in, we started this a couple months ago, uh, talking about doubt. And uh, we said that the thing that puts all of us on the same page, uh, even... uh is that all of us doubt from time to time? Even if you're a Christian, even if you've been a Christian for a long time, at some point along this journey, you've had doubts about your faith, doubts about God, doubts about uh, the way that God operates, doubts about something that you experienced in the church, or something that you just experienced in life. If you're not a Christian, if you're still trying to figure out where you land with all this, if you're still waiting to become a Christian because you've got some questions, um, I hope this could be an encouragement to you. Uh, if, you're, if your hesitation is that you think that you need to get it all figured out before you become a follower of Jesus, you, know, you need to get rid of all of your doubts and get all your questions answered before really becoming a Christian— You need to know this morning that even after you become a Christian, even sometimes a long ways down the road, there are going to be some things that just don't make sense and you will experience doubt. So the question isn't, will you have doubt? The question is, what will you do with your doubt? So a few weeks ago in part one, we said that one thing to do with your doubt is you just bring them with you. You bring your doubts with you, just carry them with you. Doubt isn't a reason to abandon Jesus. Doubt isn't a reason to abandon the Christian faith. Doubt isn't a reason to give up and abandon the Bible. Doubt isn't a reason to quit on the church. Doubt is something that you embrace and carry with you. And we talked about how to do that and what that looks like, that when you decide, I'm just gonna carry my doubts with me as I follow Jesus. So doubt is a, we said that doubt is a normal part of the Christian experience. And we've defined doubt this way for our purposes. That doubt is when what I feel Obstructs what I know. When what I feel obstructs what I know. When what I feel, the emotion that has surfaced because of what I see, because of what I've been told, because of what I'm experiencing, when it gets in the way of what I know to be true. So now the issue is, what do I do with that? What do I do with my doubt? In part two, we talked about the story of John the Baptist, especially at the very end of his life. And we talked about the kinds of things that cause us to doubt or that fuel our doubt. Things like a new reality. When things around us don't look like they used to. Sometimes that's a good environment. Sometimes it's a bad situation. And we get some practical suggestions to addressing our doubts. In part three, we said that too often doubt can feel like a barrier to your relationship with God. That doubt can feel like an obstruction in your relationship with your Heavenly Father. And we use the illustration of an eclipse And in our illustration, we let the sun represent God and the earth represents us and the moon represents our doubt. And in a solar eclipse, our doubt comes between us and God. And our doubt casts a shadow and we can't see God uh, clearly. And it seems like he can't see us. And we looked at Psalm 13 and we looked at Psalm 40 and we said that honesty with God creates a relationship that is strong enough to bear even the weight of doubt. Then we change this illustration and we moved the moon to the other side of the earth where it changes from a solar eclipse to a lunar eclipse. And in this position, when the doubt moves all the way around to where you can see clearly, you can, it's as if you can see God clearly. And you can see him as he really is. You can see the truth clearly, and your doubt is behind you. And here's the, here's the bottom line of that. You may never completely remove your doubt, but you have the ability to put it in its proper place. Today we're going to continue this conversation and we're going to get specific uh, because a, a few weeks ago we turned the corner in this, in this series and we talked about possible doubt triggers. Because we all have doubt triggers. There are certain concepts, uh, certain beliefs, certain ideas that when you hear them in a sermon, when you read them in a book, where, when you come across them in a conversation, they make you pause. Pause. And you're not sure what's going on, or is this really a big deal, or am I making it a big deal? But certain topics just make you wonder, they make you ask, really? I mean, I mean, really, whose idea was that? Or really, who says so? I mean, why? Why do we believe that? Why is it such a big deal? Or is it? Have I made it a big deal? Is it really? I'm confused. I don't know. I don't even know anymore. Maybe it's nothing. Sometimes these things act like doubt triggers. And they take our minds down a path that is a little unfamiliar and certainly uncomfortable. And we'd rather just ignore it and look the other way because to face it head on uh, and and really, you know, ask the tough questions and really do our research and, and dig deeper might expose something that would cause us to doubt, maybe even doubt the whole thing. So it kind of makes us uncomfortable. So we're looking at three, just three examples. Some of the big doubt triggers. And, uh... And I want to kind of, my goal is to kind of show you how I've addressed these personally just to satisfy my own curiosity. And maybe this will help you to follow uh, a similar process on the issues that maybe are, they trigger doubt in you. And and maybe one of these is your main trigger. I don't know. So we started with this idea that Jesus is the only way to God. And for many, many people, believers and non-believers, this is a significant doubt trigger because it seems so narrow and it seems so exclusive. So we talked about that. That Jesus is the only way to God. Then in part five, we talked about creation. That's a doubt trigger for a lot of people. God created and made the heavens and the earth, and we talked about some of the views of creation that may vary in their details, but are very still true to the biblical account. So today, we're going to look at one more doubt trigger, and then we're going to move on to a new topic in a couple weeks. But this is a big one. This is probably a question that not only you struggle with or have at some point, uh, but chances are the people sitting all around you struggle with it too. In fact, uh, people in this church, people in churches all over town and all over the place struggle with this one. And people who wouldn't go to church no matter what, they struggle with it too. And it may, maybe it's the ultimate doubt trigger for you. The good news about the way that we've handled these two doubt triggers so far and the way we're going to try to handle this one today and the way we've kind of tried to handle this whole doubt topic in this series is that if you've been here all along, you know that we've been able to respond to all these doubt issues definitively in about 48 minutes and answer all the questions. Okay, you have been here. All right, good. You know that's not the, that's not the goal here because it's just, it's just not true. But what we, what we do uh, try to do here is to address it and uh, acknowledge it and explore it and open that door a little bit and uh, maybe open our minds some. So today's doubt trigger is this. If God is good, you know where I'm going, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) Identified your doubt trigger. If God is good, why do bad things happen? Ever ask this question? Anybody? I'm I'm curious. I'm going to stay here until everybody acknowledges that maybe they've asked this question. Ever had somebody ask this question of you? I'd love to know what your answer is because maybe I'll just change my whole sermon right here. Um, Here's the deal. You have asked this question personally. And if you haven't asked it yet, you will. It's almost always the first response to suffering, to loss, to grief, to unexpected circumstances. If God is so good, because all along I believed he was, why do bad things happen? This is how it shows up. If something bad happens to you, as you define bad, Maybe you get, a, you get diagnosed with something. Maybe you lose a job. Maybe you experience a financial reversal. Maybe things are falling fall apart in the relationships that matter most to you. Maybe you experience a loss of a loved one. And when we're struggling, we ask this question, and it starts it, 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 to show up in different ways. If God is so good, why do bad things happen? If, it, it's like what we're really asking is, God, why me? I mean, isn't that our immediate response as soon as we begin to experience something that might be negative or something where we certainly can't see the positive, we can't see the good in the moment, and uh, our interpretation of our life experiences, and we see it as suffering or trial, we're like, God, why? And specifically, why me? Why did this happen? Why did I not get the job that I wanted? Why did I end up in this job? Why do I have so many relational problems? Why, am I, why do I struggle with this addiction or that addiction? Why are things always headed south for me financially? Why can I never get caught up? Why can I not keep my head above water? Why am I always struggling with my health? There's a long list, okay? And some of us, the way that we look at life, uh, we think there, there maybe has been a disproportionate amount of struggle in our lives. That's how self-absorbed we tend to be. Everybody else's deal is, oh, that's too bad. But for me, it's like, oh, you have no idea. In a few cases, you might be right. (laughs) Maybe you are the worst case that anybody's ever seen. You know, people very close to you, you love very much, have struggled with, you know, heart disease and cancer and they've died and you look at the sadness around you and the only questions you know how to ask it's a it's a first question it's a lingering question and it's the question why and as that question goes deeper and as we wrestle with it it's like it it kind of gets to the point where it's like god if you're even up there because i i want to believe you're up there and if you're good because i want to believe you're good uh the bible suggests that you're good then why i mean why suffering at all and and why loss and why do bad things happen and more specifically why do they happen to me And although it's a little bit simplistic, I want to break down uh, the bad things that have happened to you and the bad things that have happened to so many people that we know and love. I want to break them down into two categories. The first category is what I call unexplainable things, okay? Those things that are unexplainable. And uh, first, let me, first of all, for all you grammar nerds, I just want to acknowledge that I know unexplainable is not the best word here, right? I finished eighth grade. I understand that because it should be what? Inexplicable. inexplicable, right, you're like, right, it should be inexplicable, I understand that, which I think if we were right, if I was writing something, I would use the word inexplicable, who uses that word in a conversation, and this is a conversation, albeit a one-way one, uh, so, uh, but it's, it's me talking to you, so I'm just going to use the word unexplainable, and we're all going to accept it, and half of you are like, I had no idea it was an issue with this word, now I'm confused, now I'm looking it up on Google, I'm all distracted, so come back to us whenever you figure out what I'm talking about. Um, in other words, with unexplainable things, there is no cause and effect. It's not like you were irresponsible and you buried yourself in debt and you were wiped out financially, okay? That's not an unexplainable thing. It's not like you're so angry and you're so judgmental and you're so lazy and you don't have any good, quality, healthy relationships. That's not an unexplainable thing. It's not like you smoked cigarettes for 30 years and now you're paying the price in your body, That doesn't fit in this category. It's like you took good care of your body and you still got cancer. It's like someone you know and love who was very young died. Those things are unexplainable. And some of you, when you look at your life, you would say that it's characterized by a lot of unexplainable struggles and setbacks and sufferings. It's like God's got something against you. I can't uh, come up with an explanation uh, because... no one seems to know why it's happening. So I hope you know that we're, I'm not going to probably give you a very satisfactory. I'm going to try to answer it, but it may not be very satisfactory. It's just unexplainable. And as much as you search for explanations, you can't really trace it back. So that's one kind of thing that happens. The other category, and I think this is true of most of our situations, and it's certainly true of all of us, that we have some of this, are those things that we would say that are are explainable. They have an explanation. The challenge with this is that when I'm looking for an explanation, most of the time the explanation is, is more invisible and elusive to me than it is to you. So if I'm the one, I'm the one dealing with explainable circumstances, it's probably a mystery to me. You know, why is this happening to me? Why am I having these health issues? Why is my third marriage falling apart? And everyone around you, around me is like, seriously? You can't see it? Sit down. I'll tell you why, because I can tell you why. It's pretty clear. You know, why am I struggling so much financially? And to the person that's asking this question, it's a mystery. But to the people who watch you make one poor financial decision after another, it's not such a mystery. It's cause and effect. It makes perfect sense why you're struggling to keep your head above water. You know, why can't I ever get along with people at work? And everybody else is going, you know, not out loud, of course. It's like, I can tell you, right? I can tell you why it's so hard for you at work. I'll tell you exactly why. Because you're so unprofessional and you're because you're selfish and you're mostly just a big jerk. So why are you surprised that you can't get along with people? So some of the things that we struggle with are just explainable. And I know for me, I know a lot of, you know, a lot of your stories, we know each other pretty well. I've had a chance to hear your stories, and in some cases I've walked with you through some really tough stuff, and, and you've dealt with some real serious stuff, and sickness, and loss, and uh, you know. It's, I, here's the deal: I haven't really experienced this stuff myself. I haven't had to face that those kinds of situations. Some of you have had terrible, unexplainable suffering and loss. So I, I don't don't think I'm making light of it at all, and don't think if my answer seems a little simplistic just understand I'm doing the best that I can. For some of us, most of the struggles in our lives have been self-inflicted. Totally explainable. Okay, it's not to discount the unexplainable ones. Those are still kind of out there like, I'd like to have an answer someday on that. But let's not ignore the explainable. So if God is so good, why do we live in a world where we experience explainable and unexplainable circumstances? Why can't things just kind of roll out the way that we hope it would? Well, No matter how we phrase the question, most of us have struggled or still struggle with this question, that if God is good, why do bad things happen? So as we uh, dig into this this morning, um, I'm borrowing heavily from uh, a teacher and an author named Tim Keller. Uh, Tim Keller is a pastor of Redeemer, Presbyterian Church in New York City, an amazing ministry and and, uh, impact he's having. He's written some incredible books uh, and... His writings on this subject are awesome. So if you want to go a little deeper than even I'm going today, I encourage you to, to check out Tim Keller. He says it this way. He says that when it comes to suffering, there are two common responses. Or, you know, or those bad, we call them just bad experiences. Those bad, why do bad things happen? He says typically there are two common responses. One is moralism. And the other is cynicism. And I know these words sound like big conceptual things, but I promise you, you are familiar to both of these responses. You've probably experienced both and engaged in both. Moralism and cynicism. So moralism basically says that there is some kind of cause and effect. That if you do this, that God should protect you. And moralistic explanations of sufferings, they look like this. Well, there must be something in your life. There must be sin in your life. God's probably punishing you for something. You did something wrong along the way, and God sat on it for 20 years, and zap, he got you, finally. Ever had anyone tell you that? That perhaps the unexplainable things in your life are a result of something that you're not doing right? Whew, wow. The idea that, well, maybe you just need to get your life right, and this is God's way of getting your attention. Uh, You need to get back in church, and you need to get right with God. I know sometimes that's why people come back to church, and they come back to church, because they're like, my life is, is going so bad. And if I, if I start going to church, maybe God will come over to my side for a while and things will start to go my way. Um, some of you might even read your Bible with mixed motives, you know, that I hope God has taken notice. Here, I'm reading my Bible today, so I hope I have a good day, God. You see this, right? Moralism says basically that if I do this, then God should do that. And at its worst, it says, you know, if I give, if I serve, if I sacrifice, that God is obligated to do whatever, fill in the blank keep me safe, keep my kids safe, you know, keep my marriage intact, keep my finances in good shape. In fact, maybe, maybe you know, win an occasional lottery would be great. Get me that job, keep me from getting sick, and so on. And here's the deal. The more religious you are, the longer you've been a Christian, the more likely it is that you search for moralistic explanation for things. Even if you haven't said it out loud, you've maybe thought it. Oh, well, I don't know what the problem is. If she would stop doing that, if he would do this, if she would love God more, if he would be in church more, that's moralism. It's like, God, I'm going to live a righteous life, and and I'm a good person, and if I live a good life, uh, then you, God, I understand, the way I understand it, you are obligated to save me from, you know, suffering and loss and unexplainable things. That's moralism, and maybe you think this is true. I just want you to know that this approach is not biblical. It's not how God operates. It's not true to his character. It's, it's common. It's human. But it's not how God operates. It's not where the Bible lands on this. And if you're like, well, I thought that was the whole purpose of, you know, how God works and stuff. And if I do such and such, and then God will do whatever, you know, and take care of me and it'll all be good. No. Moralism is one response to suffering. The other is cynicism. And you're probably maybe more familiar with cynicism. Uh, cynicism says that if there's a God, then clearly he doesn't know, and if he knows, he doesn't care. And if he cares, he's not powerful enough to do anything anyway. You know, life is random, bad things happen. Sometimes they happen to good people, sometimes they happen to bad people. God doesn't seem to care, one way or the other. If he created the universe, he did it and then took his hands off. So if you're one of those people looking for uh, cause and effect, well, if I do this and, you know, God will do such and such, you know, you're thinking, if, you're, if you lean more towards cynicism, you're thinking, well, good luck with that because life is random, suffering is random, it, it just happened to happen to you, um, so too bad, get over it, move on. Cynics who believe that there is a God would say, well, God doesn't know, God doesn't care, God couldn't prevent it anyway, so just deal with it the best that we can. Here's the thing. Moralism and cynicism are the two most common responses to explain suffering and loss and bad things. Which takes us back to the question and the doubt trigger that we're trying to respond to today. If God is good, why do bad things happen? The response I want to suggest to that is this. You've got to hang with me. That perhaps suffering, you can put whatever word you want in there, loss, struggle is the shadow side of freedom. Perhaps suffering is the shadow side of freedom. You're like, what? Did you just change the subject? Because what does this have to do with anything? Hang with me. Stay with me here. There's something inside you and I that tells us and the scripture reveals it, but I don't think you really even need to read the Bible to know this because it's human, that freedom is essential. We are created to be free beings that as humans it is somehow embedded into our dna that you and i are created to be free beings you and i are free to walk away from god we are free to walk towards god we're free to walk with god as a kid you might have thought well i don't have any freedom and you get to be a teenager and you move into adulthood and all of a sudden you're like i have all kinds of freedom now And I don't have to listen to my parents. I can do whatever I want. And some of you did just that. And you're still carrying that baggage around. And you're free to walk away from the people that you love. And you're free to do uh, good. You're free to do evil. God himself is free. And heavenly creatures are free. And you and I are free. So what if suffering is the shadow side of freedom? What if because we are free, we have the capacity for good but we also have the capacity for evil. What, we have the capacity to love, but we also have the capacity to hate. And we have the capacity to make good choices, and we have the capacity to make great choices. And of course, I know the question is, well, why would God set it up that way? Why, why do you think this is a good idea? Why would he do that? Why wouldn't he just make everything just go fantastic for us, you know? Because that's what we want. You, we just want our day to roll out great, don't we? I mean, you just want your life to kind of roll out the way you dreamed it would roll out. And I think the response to this question, what if suffering is a shadow side of freedom? The best response I've I've ever seen is this, that that only the free can love. Only the free can love. You cannot make someone love you. Ever tried that? Some of you have tried that. That hasn't worked out so well. Some of you have loved someone who doesn't love you back. And you can't make them love you. So how does this relate to suffering? How does freedom relate to suffering? Um, I think we get a great glimpse into this in the Old Testament in a very uh, famous book, the book of Job. And no, it's not a book about Steve Jobs. It's, the, it's a guy named Job. He's associated, he's probably the most famous figure in human history to be associated with human suffering. So Job is very successful. He's very rich. He loves God. He's that guy that you look at and he kind of has everything. And in a story that raises so many questions as it answers, you know, we get this this view into what happens in the spirit realm in an attempt to destroy Job's life. There are lot, I've got lots of questions about the, how this whole thing works. I just want to read this passage and kind of see where it takes us. So uh, if you have your Bible or your Bible app, we're, gonna, we're in uh, Job chapter 1, and I'm going to read several verses. I'm going to start with verse 6. Um, one day the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser Satan came with them. Now let me just acknowledge, I don't know how this works. I don't know if Satan has a standing appointment with God once a week or if it's probably Monday morning, I'm guessing. And, uh, you know, and uh, yeah, and there's kind of like I've been watching some stuff and we got I got a target. And, you know, you know who it is. It's all of us every every Monday. Um, So I don't know how that works. And that's not really the point of my message today. So we're just going to accept that it happens and keep reading the story. Where have you come from? The Lord asked Satan. And Satan answered the Lord, I've been patrolling the earth watching everything that's going on. <laughs> like, ooh, that's creepy, dude. <laughs> and the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? The Lord asked Satan, why would, he, why, why would he bring that up? Did it ever strike you that maybe beings in heaven talk about you? Did you just get shivers, <laughs> you know, or you just want to crawl into your chair? God says he's the finest man in all the earth. He's blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. And Satan replied to the Lord, Yes, but Job has good reason to fear God. Verse 10. You've always put a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. You've made him prosper in everything that he does. (laughs) Look how rich he is. He doesn't love you, God. He loves what you have done for him. He loves what you have given him. Satan's a cynic. I've got that side of me. You might have that side of you. When I tap into it, man, I got more in common with Satan than I do with my heavenly father, sadly. Because there's always that roll your eyes kind of thing. Here's the explanation. Here you go. I got that in me. You probably do too. He says, Job has good reason to love you. You've always put a wall of protection around everything that he has, his family, his success, his stuff. He's like, you've made him to prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. Of course he's going to love you. Look what you've done for him. Verse 11, Satan says, but reach out and take away everything he has. He will surely curse you to your face because he doesn't love you. He loves what you've done for him. This is a great question. Do I love God for who he is or do I love him for what he's done for me? Whew. Look at this. Again, this raises more questions than it answers. Verse 12. All right, you may test him, the Lord said to Satan. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. Oh, and This limitation actually would change later on in this whole deal. So, so Satan left the Lord's presence. Verse 13. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting at the oldest brother's house, a messenger arrived at Job's home with this news. Just get ready. Just sit down because get ready for this. Your oxen were plowing with the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabaeans raided us. They stole all the animals and killed all the farmhands. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. Verse 16. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. The fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up your sheep and all the shepherds. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. Verse 17. While he was still speaking, a third messenger arrived with this news. Have you ever wondered where the messengers came from? If each of them was the only one who survived? I don't, I don't know how this works. The Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and killed your servants. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. Verse 18. You're like, no, seriously, this has got to stop. <laughs> While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. Your sons and daughters were feasting in their older brother's house. Suddenly, a powerful wind swept in, randomly I'm sure, from the wilderness and hit the house on all sides. The house collapsed and all your children are dead. Oh, I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. Can you imagine? You go from having it all to having nothing. Some of you have experienced some significant loss in your life. And even though it isn't exactly a Job story, you'd say, on some level, I can identify with this. Verse 20. <coughs> Job stood up and tore his robe in grief. Then he shaved his head and fell to the ground. To, to, to do what? No, wait. What, what would you do if you were Job? I mean, you had everything going for you. You had money. You had this amazing family. You had power and influence. What would you do? I mean, how would you respond? How would I respond in a time of loss like that? All of his property, all of his possessions, all of his successes, all of his wealth wiped out, and all of his children are dead. The scripture says he fell to his ground to do what? To curse God? To ask why? To question God's sovereignty? He fell to the ground to worship. Verse 21. He said, I came naked from my mother's womb. I'll be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. Some translations say the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Does that sound familiar to you? And all of this says Job did not sin by blaming God. I'm not going to pretend to be able to settle this dilemma once and for all, okay? But I want to offer a few thoughts um, about unexplainable suffering and unexplainable loss and unexplainable circumstances. Number one, huge lesson from the book of Job. Number one is never build your life on something that can be taken away from you. We are are tempted by so many things. We're tempted by success. We're tempted by love. We're tempted by family. We're tempted by relationships. We're tempted by positions and status and image and what we think is security and achievement and progress. It's like we're always saying, well, if I can just have this, if I can just experience this, I mean, I'm not, I'll be content. I'm not asking for much. I'm, kinda, I'm not asking for anything that a lot of people around me don't already have God. So. And you might look at your life and think, well, sure, my life's gone pretty well, but you know, not without its bumps and its hiccups and setbacks, but it's all pretty good right now. I'm just telling you, this lesson from the book of Job is so important. Don't build your life on something that can be taken away from you. Some of you have spent your whole life so far looking for the person who's going to provide you security financially and relationally. Some of you spent your whole life working in a career looking for a level of stability and security. Listen, no one and nothing can provide that kind of security that you're looking for. Only Christ can do that. And if your whole identity is in what you do and who you're with and the stuff that you have, I, I'm just telling you, you're in a very volatile situation because it can all change in a moment. It can all be gone. And, and who are you then? So what's the one thing that can't be taken from us? I would argue that it's our relationship with Christ. It's who you are because of what Christ has done for you. Number two, ultimately, neither moralism nor cynicism provides an adequate response to suffering and loss. You can read the rest of the book of Job. I'd encourage you to. It's basically his moralistic friends, you know, going, well, Job, you seem like a good guy on the outside, but you must have done something wrong. You know, maybe if you had just done this, and if you'd only done that, and if you hadn't, what about this, Job? And they're trying to explain it. His cynical friends are like, well, God doesn't know, and God doesn't care, and he's powerless to do anything anyway. So what's the point? That's pretty much the rest of the story of Job for the next 41 chapters. Number three. Suffering leaves you searching for an explanation you may never find. Suffering loss and negative circumstances, everything that we lump under that bad things category, leave us searching for an explanation we may never find. The thing about Job's story is that through the book and on the other side of it, we get to see a bit of the the explanation, but Job never did, not in real time. Think about that. We can blitz through the 42 chapters of Job or whatever it is, and we're like, oh, yeah, in a couple hours I get the whole story. Oh, I see where this is going. Job had to live it. He never got an explanation. He died going, I don't really know what that was all about. I still don't know why it happened. And here we are, like 3,000 years later, talking about Job. So it may leave you searching for an explanation you never find. Number four, we look for an answer, but God provides a person. We're like, if I could just get an answer, if I could just get a satisfactory explanation, if, if, if I could just know why, if I could just you know, what, know what God's trying to accomplish through these unexplainable circumstances, you know, why is my life this way, why is my husband this way, why is my job turning out this way, why are my finances this way, why are my relationships with my kids this way, what are, why is my wife like that? Why? We're always looking for an answer. But I, I'll, I'll tell you, even if you've got your answer, it's not going to satisfy you. I think God would say to us, kind of just, you know what, forget the answers. I'm giving you myself. And that's all that Job has left, is his relationship with God. And you kind of know this, because whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're a seasoned Christian who knows your Bible inside, or out, inside and out, or whether you're still 30 minutes later trying to find the book of Job, doesn't matter where you are. When, when you've been suffering, what's one of the best things that can happen? Not Mr. or Mrs. Answer coming along who can explain away your suffering, who can explain away your darkness and your wilderness with some oversimplified, trite explanation. Well, everything happens for a reason. That's when I just, I just want to punch somebody in the face. You know, like, well, God, no, God has a plan. Like, be nice if he'd show me. That, that is not helpful. That's not, that's not what I am looking for in that situation in life. I'm not looking for Mr. or Mrs. Answer to come along. It's the people who are with you. The people who sit with you, sometimes in silence. It's the people who weep with you. It's the people that just want to know that you're not alone in your suffering, in your loss, in your negative circumstances. And to that, God says, I am with you. There's a place to start... uh, Processing unexplainable suffering. Okay, Um, what about explainable suffering? This is this is a two very different deals. This is most of the suffering and most of the negative circumstances we find ourselves are explainable circumstances. It's like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. I should I should have known better. I shouldn't have said yes to that. I I really hurt some people. And and Jesus gives us some great uh, insight into explainable. suffering explainable negative circumstances Uh, and for some of you your suffering might be mostly unexplainable but for most people most of our suffering is explainable so what do you do jesus tells a story and it's a very familiar story he tells it three times in three different ways so we're going to jump into the third telling of the story in luke 15 and he's telling stories about these lost things being found luke 15 verse 11 says to illustrate the point further jesus told them this story a man had two sons And Jesus is telling his listeners, if you want to know what the father is like, if you want to know where you stand with him, listen to this. Verse 12. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. It's like, what? I mean, how many of you have ever had the audacity to say to your parents, hey, I noticed you're not dead yet, but could you pay up? You know, you're still here. When do you think you'll be kicking off? Because I could really use those funds right now. Before you dismiss him, this is our story. You would think that the responsible father would say, son, that's ridiculous. You go do your chores, go to your room, you're grounded, whatever. But look at this. So his father, there's more to that. There had to be more to the conversation. But it says, so the father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Who does that? So I think there's more to the story. Verse 13 few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. I won't ask how many of you have been there done that. Verse 14, about the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. Now, this is getting offensive. The whole audience is Jewish. Jesus is Jewish you don't eat pigs, which I can't imagine, and you, and you don't work with pigs. He is approaching rock bottom. Verse 16, the young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. A couple verses back, he's spending his money on wild living through the best parties in town. But where were all of his friends right now? It says, but no one gave him anything. Ever been there? Friends have left me. Families left me, or maybe I've left them. This addiction thing, this conflict, this dysfunction, this financial mess. Maybe some of you are there right now. Look what he does, verse 17. When he finally came to his senses, it's like, oh my goodness, what was I thinking? He said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. So here's my plan. Verse 18, I'll go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. I blew it. And some of you might be thinking, okay, I, I could go back to God. Maybe you gave your life to Christ as a kid, you know, and, and maybe around a campfire when you were a teenager or maybe it's been like a decade or it's been 20 years or whatever. And you're like, I got, I got so much to explain and I, I, got, I got a lot of explaining to do to God if I'm coming back. But I got my arguments all thought out, so maybe it's time. But I wonder how he's going to take that. And his son says, please take me on as a hired servant. Verse 20. So he returned home to his father. I know this is a familiar story. Don't rush through this. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. If you're thinking, well, I've thought about becoming a Christian, lots of questions. I got some I got my own doubt triggers and stuff, but I've thought about it. But man, I got some stuff and I got some junk and I got some stuff in my past that is kind of in my present, and I'm not sure how I'll be received. Maybe some of you have fallen away and, and you're like, I've blown it so badly. I, I've, I've made so many choices that I know are wrong and I don't know how God's going to receive me. I just don't know. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. How do you see someone coming a long way off? You know what I think? I think God stands on the porch thinking today is going to be the day. Is today going to be the day that he comes home? Is today going to be the day that she comes home? I hope it's today. I gave him his freedom because I love him so much. And I hope it's today. And day after day, the father went inside at sundown, brokenhearted, thinking, I guess it's not today. I wonder how much longer. And he just waited and he watched because God's a God of hope. He's not a cynic. And one day, the father saw a figure on the horizon and he thought, could that be him? Could that be him? I think it's him. And look what he does. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. You want to know how God feels about you? Read read the rest of this story. Read verses 21 to 24. Because the father's like, we've got to celebrate, for this son of mine was dead, and he's returned to life, and he was lost, and now he's found. Your heavenly father's been waiting for you Longer than you've been waiting for him. And he lets you use your freedom. Man, it is hard to sit back and say, go ahead, learn your lessons the hard way. If that's what you choose. The shadow side of freedom is suffering. The The shadow side of freedom is consequences that we'd rather not have to face. But the upside The upside of freedom. The upside is hope. The upside is love. The upside is we will finally have the kind of relationship with our Heavenly Father that He's designed us for and desires for us. I can't explain the unexplainable. This has been my weak attempt. This story gives us insight into the suffering that we've caused in our own lives and in the lives of other people. So if you ever wondered... What what does God think of me now? I would just say stop wondering. Because what if the long journey away from God is finally over for you? What if there's enough intellectually for you now that you can admit, okay, I can explore this more. This doesn't satisfy all my questions. It certainly doesn't remove all of my doubts. uh, But I'm okay with this right now. With what I know, I'm okay with this. What if the long journey away from God is finally over for you? What if, what if, I mean, what's keeping you from heading home to your heavenly father? That's the question I want you to wrestle with. What's keeping you from your heavenly father? I know we haven't addressed every doubt trigger. That not even close. That wasn't my intention. I just wanted to give you a couple examples, and they're, they're pretty common. I know that even the triggers that we've addressed, even those, we haven't satisfied all your issues with those particular topics. Um, But I hope it's opened your mind and, and maybe motivated you to go explore this a little further. I'm sure you have lots of questions. But for today, for now, for this moment in time, I'm just wondering what if it's time to acknowledge your doubts, to acknowledge the power they've had over you, to move them from the place where they block your view of God to their proper place behind you. And what if it's time to take your first steps back to God? What if your long journey away from God is finally over? Within arm's reach of just about everybody in the room, somewhere in a seat pocket in front of you, there's a connect card. And I just want to give you an opportunity this morning to respond. On the front, there's a place for your name and some contact info, a little bit about yourself. On the back, there are some things about your experience this morning, but I want to draw your attention to this section down on the lower left where it says, today I became a follower of Jesus Christ. And I'd like to know a little more about my next steps. Because for some of you, this journey into addressing doubt over the last few weeks may have led you to this place, to this moment in time, where for the first time you're going, yeah, that's it. I'm going to bring my doubts with me, and I'm going to trust Jesus. It's the best explanation I can find. So this could be your moment in time to become a follower of Jesus. For some of you, you're, going to, you're like, "Well, I'm not sure. I'd like to know more about a relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm open to having some conversations. I've, somebody would sit down with me over coffee. I've got some questions, uh, but I really, I'm ready to bring my doubts with me. But there's some things I don't completely understand. I'd really like to know more." That's, that's awesome. There's a place for you to indicate that too. Here's the deal. There's a, there's a lot of stuff I don't know. There's a, there are a lot of doubts I can't move. There are questions I can't answer very well, even for me. There there are questions I can't begin to answer. But here's what I know. That my Heavenly Father loves me, and our Heavenly Father loves you. He loves you more than you could imagine. Today I want to give you an opportunity to, as we wrap up this this conversation over these last few weeks about doubt, I want to give you an opportunity to take a step toward God. If you're at a place where you're like, okay, that's enough. That I've got enough questions answered. i got questions, but I'm done running. I want to give you an opportunity to pray a prayer and invite the Lord Jesus Christ to be your Savior. And If there's never been a moment in your life that you've experienced and embraced Jesus personally, I, I just want to give you that moment today because I think today is a perfect day. If during this message or at some point along this journey in these last uh, six weeks or so, uh, there was something that clicked in you, that kind of dawned on you, that somehow started to move your doubts to the proper place, then perhaps this is the day for you to embrace this message and to be restored into a relationship with your Heavenly Father. So if you find yourself right there right now, I I would like to just invite everyone to bow their heads. I want to lead you through a prayer. You can change the words. You can say it out loud if you want. You can say it in your heart. But we just say, Heavenly Father, I believe Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world and for my sins. I believe he was buried, and I believe on the third day you raised him from the dead and that he was seen. Today, I embrace him as my personal Savior. I'm trusting him to provide forgiveness for all my sin, my past sin, and the sin of my future. Receive me into your family. I want to establish a new relationship with my Heavenly Father. In the name of Jesus, the resurrected Savior. Amen. We're going to play a song. While the song is playing, this is a good time for you to fill out a Connect card on your way out today. Just leave it in an offering box or leave it with me or with Pastor Bob. Thanks for being so engaged through these last few messages um, and the conversations I've had with you have been awesome. I appreciate your encouragement and your participation. Listen to this song.